tucked away in the pages of your Old Testament is the account of the day in which Yahweh, God of the Israelites, commanded them to build an image of a snake out of bronze and to hold it up on a pole so that they could look to it and be saved. It's quite a remarkable story, and we're going to learn all about it as we return to our study in the book of John in the New Testament uh, in John chapter 3. Well, welcome back to the Apostles Mailbox. It's been a while since we've been here, a little bit of Christmas break and a new year, and we're on to 2024. All right, <laughs> we're really going to shake some things up. Uh, hopefully, you'll hang with me. I think there's uh, much value to be had. Uh, but as I mentioned, we're in John chapter 3, uh, where we left off last, which was uh, about the middle of December, is uh, Nicodemus had come to Jesus in order to learn at night from Jesus. Okay, and they had gotten engaged in this conversation, and, and Jesus told him that in order to enter the kingdom of heaven or to see the kingdom of heaven, he had to be born again or born from above. And Nicodemus, he didn't get it. So uh, we're going to pick up here in the middle of this conversation. We'll overlap just a couple verses where we left, left off last time. Uh, we're going to read that, and then we're just going to start with a couple of verses, actually, uh, and then we'll uh, move along to the snake. So Nicodemus is talking to Jesus. He doesn't get these things. And Jesus says, Are you the teacher of Israel, and you don't understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know, we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can, I, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? For no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man." All right, that's a, a good chunk to get us started here. Um, actually, what we're talking about today uh, is this question of why people don't like the real Jesus. And the first thing that we're going to see uh, as, as we look at this passage that we just read is that when people come to meet the real Jesus, right, Jesus as he is portrayed in the Gospels, as he is remembered uh, by these witnesses, uh, many people don't believe in Jesus because Jesus talks above us. Uh, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he tells him that he has to be born from above, and what he's referring to is a spiritual reality, something that transcends just the physical, the flesh and blood. And we have this dilemma as human beings where we live so immersed in the physical and all of our senses, well, not all of our senses, but uh, the vast majority of our sensory input on a day-to-day -day basis is through our five senses, right? And so we interact primarily, as we're aware, in a physical realm, and uh, that's where our attention is consumed. Now, in, in verse 11 here, Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, and he says uh, that we speak of what we know, and we bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. And I think when Jesus says we there, um, he is referring to himself and John the Baptist, okay? Um, at the end of John chapter 3, we'll, we'll eventually get into this weird sort of place where John the Baptist's ministry starts coming to an end because it is overlapped with Jesus. And where John started baptizing for repentance of sins, we're going to find that Jesus has started baptizing as a sign of repentance of sins, right? And so they have this overlapping ministry that is very much the same. 
In fact, I just I just saw a, a YouTube video by a guy basically who was claiming that Jesus and John the Baptist really believed the same thing and they were teaching the same thing uh, because they were both, his theory was they were both Essenes. They were both this members of this uh, particular Jewish uh, community, which I don't know if that is uh, really worth putting much weight on, but it is real, it is true that a, a large degree of what John taught and what Jesus taught was just basically just completely overlapped. So if you imagine John got us this far and then Jesus, you know, started like a, a baton handoff in a race, they were running alongside at the same speed and, and John hands the baton off to Jesus and then Jesus goes uh, from there. And what, what Jesus is saying, I think, here is he's saying, look, John the Baptist has been preaching about repentance for the forgiveness of sins and you guys haven't got that. And that's just like really like tangible um earthly, worldly things. Like John is saying, you know, do what's right. Uh, quit being unjust. Uh, repent of your sins. Turn from them. Do what is right. And now Jesus is coming, and Jesus is taking it to the next level. And he starts talking about this spiritual birth, this baptism of the Holy Spirit that Jesus is going to bring, that births life in us. And and uh, when Jesus talks about things, he's saying essentially to Nicodemus, like, you don't have a chance of getting this. You didn't even get lesson one. How are you going to master lesson two? And then in verse 13, he goes on and he says, No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And when you read this, you think like, oh, yeah, because Jesus, you know, descended from heaven and then he ascended. Uh, but the, the way it's written... Uh, it makes it sound like uh, no one that that it makes it sound almost like Jesus is saying he has already ascended into heaven. Um, it's a weird way that it's phrased. It's the perfect tense here. Um, no one has ascended. But I think what's going on is the commentators that I've read uh, seem to indicate that there was uh, most likely. Uh, true <laughs> then as it is now that there there were people going around saying hey I got I got ascended into heaven I saw all these things I'm gonna teach them to you I'm gonna explain it to them to you and you can know all of these hidden things and I think what Jesus is saying is none of those guys actually ascended into heaven okay they didn't go up and get all the secrets and they're bringing them down the only one who's who's witnessed heaven is the Son of Man right? And the Son of Man, he descended from heaven. So he's saying, I was up there first, and now I've descended. So I actually can tell you about heavenly things. These people who are going around telling you to believe them because they've been to heaven, you can discount them. Okay, so I think that's what's going on here is Jesus is, is sort of like bringing this attention from Nicodemus. Uh, he's, he's trying to help him make this transition from John the Baptist's preaching of repentance for forgiveness of sin into this reality that Jesus has come to bring eternal life and, in fact, the baptism of the Spirit. Okay, and so I think that's what Jesus is doing here, and these layers are going on. He says, you know, we're preaching of what we know, me and John the Baptist, but now I'm going to tell you about heavenly things. He's saying uh, none of these other people out there who claim to talk about heavenly things, they don't actually know what they're talking about, but I do because I've descended from uh, heaven. And then he's going to turn the page, and, and this is where it starts to get, I think, um, really fascinating.
as we get to this question of Nehushtan. So let's read in uh, uh, verse 14. He says, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God." Okay, so uh, what he's telling us is this. He's saying, just as this thing happened where Moses lifted up in a serpent, uh, so also I have to be lifted up. And so if, if you don't understand the example, the illustration of this spiritual reality, then you can't follow him. And if you're not familiar with your Old Testament, you won't get it. So what he's referring to is in Numbers chapter 21. The Israelites were wandering in the desert. They were complaining because it was miserable and God wasn't treating them like they wanted, uh, which sadly sounds like me far too often. And they're complaining and God sends serpents and these serpents bite them. And uh, the people who are bitten by these serpents are dying. And so uh, we read in Numbers uh, 21 that Yahweh says to Moses, he says, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So this is remarkable, right? Because this is the same God who gave them uh, 10 words, 10 commands. And one of those commands was, don't make for yourself any graven image. If you make an image that is supposed to represent God out of something, metal, wood, stone, whatever, if you do that, then every time you look at it, you are going to warp your view of who God is downward into something that is deaf and dumb and powerless and that has the appearance of a created being, uh, but God was not a created being, right? He is eternal and he is spirit. He is not limited in the flesh in a physical sense the way that we are. And so God didn't want uh, people's picture of him or their understanding of him to be permanently confined uh, to this deaf, dumb, powerless uh, image of something. All right? So this is why God prohibits the creation of graven images. But now here in the desert, he's doing something. He's uh, stacking the deck for later, if you will. He's prefiguring something. He's foreshadowing something that is going to happen much, much later, over a thousand years later. Uh, and, and what he tells the Israelites to do is to take this picture of a, a serpent um, and, and to put it on a pole. And when they look, look at it, then the curse of death that is upon them from being bitten will be removed. Okay? And it, and it worked. All right? So, um, what happens then is Jesus, over a thousand years later, Jesus says, just like that happened in the desert, I have to be lifted up so that when people look to me, so that whoever believes in me, they will have eternal life. 
That's verse 15. The Son of Man has to be lifted up so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Just like the serpent was hung up on a pole and you just had to look at it and be saved, Jesus says, I'm going to be lifted up, and if you believe in me, if you look to me for your salvation, you will indeed have life. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his Son so that if you believe in him, you won't perish but have eternal life. Okay, it's a very clear picture, right? You're bitten by a snake, you're dying, you look at the snake on a, on a pole, and all of a sudden you have life. You don't die. And Jesus says, you're bitten by sin, you're under the curse of sin, uh, you're dying, and, and I'm going to be lifted up. And if you look at me, I'm dying for you, and you trust in me, then you'll have life. You won't perish. Like, it's a clear parallel. And it goes even deeper than that. Because the Old Testament tells us that everything hung on a tree is cursed. And so if you look at the Israelites, the snakes, what, what they were, right? The original serpent in the garden was the doorway through which the curse came. The serpent deceived Eve. She sinned, and they received the curse of sin. And in the desert, God sends serpents as a sign of his judgment against Israel for complaining against him. Uh, for, for uh, <laughs> rather than worshiping him, for griping at him. Um, and, and so that picture then of the curse is lifted up on a stake because anything hung on a tree is cursed, right? And so Jesus is hung on a cross and he bears our curse. He takes the curse upon himself. And so he's not saying that Jesus was a serpent, but he's saying the serpent was a sign of the curse and Jesus is lifted up to bear our curse. Okay? Jesus didn't come to curse us. The bronze serpent on the pole wasn't there to curse Israel. Notice what didn't happen. God didn't say, Israel's good, but uh, what I want you to do, Moses, is make a bronze serpent and uh, have people look at it. And if they don't they don't look at it, and then I'm going to strike them dead. He didn't say that. He already sent the curse as judgment for their sin. And then he said, I will offer salvation. And so you put the sign of the curse on this pole, and everybody who looks at it and recognizes that, then they will have freely obtained healing and deliverance from me. Okay? So that's what Jesus continues on to say in verse 17 of John 3, right? He says, God didn't send Jesus into the world, his son, to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned, what? Already. He's not newly condemned. You're not, you're not newly condemned for uh, rejecting Jesus, but we are already condemned for our sin. And if we don't believe, then we remain condemned because we haven't believed in the name of the only Son of God. Okay? So, this is what, uh, this is what Jesus is saying is just like the snakes, right? You were already dying before the snake on the pole ever showed up. You were dying from being bitten by the snake, from bearing the curse, from bearing the judgment of your sin. And all of us, we are already under the curse of death prior to Jesus ever entering the picture, right? We are already dying. We are already condemned. We are already under the curse. And if Jesus had never come and died for us, we just would have died for our sins. We wouldn't have died for, you know, being so cruel as to reject Jesus. And what Jesus is saying is that God sent him into the world, not to condemn the world, because the world was already condemned, but to save the world. 
So he said, if you look to me, if you trust in me, I will give you life. I will heal you. I will conquer that curse, right? And if you don't, then you will be condemned. But the condemnation is, was already in place before I ever became part of the question. Does that make sense? And so some people, I think we get this picture of like Jesus is this, you know, terrible person. He's, he's come to tell us all the things we're doing wrong and condemn us. But the reality is that uh, the law did that. The law told us, it made very clear to us all our sin. And Jesus came not to condemn us, but to say, hey, look, you guys are already condemned. Uh, but I would love to get in between you and the coming judgment. I would like to be the mediator between you and God. You come under my protection. I will take your curse and I will shield you from that. I'll take the death on me and then you can have my life. This is what it means to know Jesus. And so, if you are not a follower of Jesus, it's very simple. Jesus talks much about doing what is right and being living as a member of the kingdom and, and receiving from God uh, blessing and life in walking according to his commands. But ultimately, the testimony of the Gospel of John is this. The world already stands condemned. And Jesus is an offer of life. And the offer of life is not something that you earn or do or manufacture. It's something that you believe. God didn't give a recipe for a, an elixir to heal the snake bites or, or a, a, a poultice or something to put on the wounds. He said, look to, the, look to the deliverance given by God and you will have life. Okay, so the first reason that Nicodemus didn't uh, come to Jesus, I think, right away, I believe he probably did later, uh, was because he didn't get it. He was still stuck in earthly things, right? He, he did not have understanding. Jesus was talking way up here, and he was already failing down here. But as Jesus explains this, what Jesus is going to say is that when God's when Jesus is lifted up, right, he's going to draw all men unto him. And, and, and I think when Jesus is finally crucified and he's lifted up, I think Nicodemus finally sees it and he goes, oh my gosh, that's what he was talking about that night. It would have been amazing, right? Uh, and, and, and then he, he believes in Jesus, I, I believe. Um, but what, what's going on here is Jesus is saying... Uh, when, when I am lifted up, right, whoever believes in me will have eternal life. But here's, here's the verdict. Okay, here's the verdict. Here's the judgment. Verse 19. Here's the verdict. Light has come into the world. That's Jesus. We saw this introduced in chapter 1. But people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. And here's the sad truth. If what we do is sinful and it's wrong and we don't want that sin, that, that depravity exposed in us, we will run from the light. Do we remember what John's baptism was? It was a symbol of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. You would come and you would say, I am a sinner. I need to be washed. I need to be forgiven. And you would do this publicly in front of everybody because, hey, uh, 
that's when that's when John was out baptizing. So essentially, you had to admit to all your friends that you're not this upstanding, solid citizen, but you're actually really a sinner, and that you need to change your life and you need to do what is right because you don't do what is right. You need to be forgiven, right? And so a baptism of repentance is hard to do. And even today, like... Uh, sadly, some people will want to come to Christ and they'll want to have his life, they'll want to be forgiven, but they don't want people looking at them or thinking whatever about them. And, you know, they're, they're ashamed in some ways to be baptized into Jesus Christ um, because they're afraid of the of whatever attention it will bring upon them. But but baptism is, is this outward sign of repentance of like the old me, it's got to go, it's got to die, it's condemned, it's sinful, and I got to come into life right? But if your deeds are dark, what you do, typically what we try to do is we try to hide them. We don't want people to know that we're sinful, right? It's hard to say uh, to people who you love and who you, who you want to respect you. It's hard to, to own your sin. Um, and this doesn't mean, of course, that you got to trumpet from the rooftops every time you do something that is wrong. Uh, but repentance requires admission of sin. And I think this is really uh, the problem um, with uh, with people who don't get this is that we don't want to admit our need, right? If, if we don't confess to having been bit by a snake, we won't seek out the snake on the stick and find life. If we can't admit to being sinners, to having need, then we won't look for Jesus. Now, if you have all the money in the world and all the fame and all the success and, 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 and all of this outward like image of, of, of perfection, like the, the way the whole world like, tries to just groom itself as this example of perfection, uh, <laughs> whether it's cosmetics or clothes or, or style or whatever, Right? We're always trying to, to put filters on our images to look better. We're always out there putting forth this image of not having need. And when we don't have need, we don't come to Christ in desperation. And that's why one of the kindest mercies that God can ever do to us is he can break us and he can take away uh, wealth and fame and health and looks. And so so we get so finely beat down and broken down, we finally give up on this illusion that I can do it all. And we cry out and we look to Jesus and we say, save me, save me, Jesus. Just last night I was there, you know, I'm thinking like if there's a cliff of a thousand foot high cliff, I'd be stuck right in the middle, just barely clinging on. I can't climb up and I'm about ready to fall down. I'm just saying, God, you need to save me. Um, there's nothing I can do. You need to save me. When we can do that, the gift of life, the salvation that Jesus brings is given freely and joyously. That's the whole reason he came. Jesus didn't come so you could look impressive to your friends he didn't come so that you could become so self-reliant that you would never need him. He came because you needed him and he knew it. And he says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so today I would say to you, if, if you at some point are, are still fighting this battle to say like, I don't need Jesus, to give it up, to throw the towel in and say, 
I have been bitten by sin. I am a sinner. I need salvation. I need forgiveness. And I need life. And so, Jesus, would you do that for me? I look to the one who is lifted up. And if you do that, Jesus will give you life. I want to offer a caution, one other caution, to come back to this idea about uh, this snake, okay? I think I've referred to it as uh, Nehushtan a couple times today, and here's the reason why. In 2 Kings 18, we're reading about Hezekiah's reforms in, in Judah, uh, where the, the people of God had turned to idolatry, and we read that he removed the high places, and he broke the pillars, and he cut down the Asherah, which were these... Um, uh, these symbols of idolatrous worship devoted to, I believe Asherah was the queen of heaven. Uh, they were worship, they were idolatrous things to worship the queen of heaven, uh, Asherah, um, as, the, as the pagan mythology had it. And he said, and he broke in pieces the bronze serpent that Moses had made, for until those days the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. And this is just a remarkable thing for me to read, to realize like God had told them to make this bronze serpent because it was a prefiguring of Jesus Christ. And they had taken something good and they had taken it out of its place and they had begun to mistake that for God and they had begun to worship that instead of God. And so Hezekiah eventually had to destroy it. Right. So even today, like, you know, there's all these questions like whatever happened to the Ark of the Covenant? Where is it? Uh, it's hidden somewhere. And honestly, like I, I hear that and I think I am so glad that we don't have the Ark of the Covenant. Can you imagine what kind of idolatrous worship would be inspired? Right. If somebody managed to unearth that thing, uh, what people would try to do with it. Uh, in order to uh, control the power of God. Because the, the promise in Jesus Christ is that uh, he has given us the Holy Spirit, so God himself indwells us so that we can worship and we can live and we can uh, move and have our being in him, right? We have him present all the time. We don't need a, a, a gold box and a special building uh, in Jerusalem to have God present with us. And what had happened in Israel with this stake, this bronze serpent on a pole, I think also happens to us today. You walk into many churches, and, and what, what do you see in so many churches is like a crucifix with, with a bronze Jesus on it, uh, still hanging there as if dead. And, and it's as if our worship of God, like, fixates on a dead guy hanging on a cross, but the cross is empty, like Jesus is alive, the tomb is, is empty, right? And, and the God that we worship is not the God of objects. He does not want our attention fixed on an object. He wants it fixed on him, right? And our obedience is to Jesus Christ, who is living, right, and active as Lord. He is an authority over all these things. And if your attempt to approach the living God, Yahweh, through his Son, Jesus Christ, if that process is attempted to be carried out by looking at a, 
at a statue of a of a dead guy in bronze like those are going to I think I think they in, I think they interfere with each other. And and frankly like I think the the Eastern Orthodox and the Roman Catholic Church uh, probably misstep when they when they take images, uh, whether it's pictures or carvings, or, you know, or or formed images of things to sort of uh, to, they would say direct their worship or uh, not being Eastern Orthodox or Catholic. I don't want to speak too much for them, but I would say like God's warning against those things was to keep us from mistaking the God who seeks to have relationship with us directly. When we put an image or something in between there, we confuse that relationship. And we might think it's helping us because it might inspire certain feelings in us uh, or it might help us keep our attention or I don't know what. Um, but the reality is like God has called us to be his own and he sent Jesus to bear the curse so that we could be reconciled to him so that he could put his Holy Spirit in us uh, and make us holy and cause us to walk in step with him each and every day and not through means of something like this, not through means of something like uh, the bronze serpent that Israel was given as a picture of Christ and then turned it into a God itself. Okay, so there's my challenge for you. Obviously, if you do not know Jesus Christ, salvation is not by something you do. It is by looking at the one who is lifted up, the one who bore the curse, right? And so, as Jesus was lifted up, you look to him, you find salvation. And a warning for you as well, if you are in a tradition where a lot of your worship revolves around images or icons or statues or whatever you want to call them, uh, you might come back to the, to, to the living God and say, God, is this actually helping my worship or is this getting in the way of it, right? Is it possible that I have been distracted from you when I'm staring at something made out of wood or stone or precious metal? Um, because at least for me, I would say, those things would interfere. Uh, and I think the the command against graven images is to protect us from just that thing. So um, that's what we have. I, you know, you, you now know who Nehushtan was, uh, the bronze serpent that Moses made in the desert as a picture of Christ over a thousand years in advance for him, uh, that salvation comes from looking to the one who bore the curse for us. Uh, and you've also uh, seen how that very looking at the thing lifted up uh, can become idolatrous if it is taken out of its right place and time, and if it causes us to miss the living God and the Son who is given to die for us and who is now alive uh, and reigning in the heavenly realms. Mm -hmm.